Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to my Second Chance podcast. In this episode, I speak with cocaine trafficker Emily O'Brien. Well, I say cocaine trafficker, but the reality is Emily did it once, got caught and ended up being sentenced to four years in prison. So not your international drug trafficker like what you see on some of these Netflix shows. No, that's not Emily. But Emily did turn her life around and the negative into a positive by creating a popcorn company while she was in prison. She now employs ex-prisoners and is passionate about sharing her journey to inspire others to turn their lives around. You've been on quite quite a journey, Emily. Thanks so much for coming on to my podcast, Second Chance. I was just looking at your website, actually, and I love some of the opening words, resilience, determination, you know, it's powerful stuff. Let's start with the Emily before the Emily, if you like. And by that, I mean, let's go back to your childhood. Where did you grow up? What was life like for you, siblings, etc.? What can you tell me, Emily? Sure. So I grew up in a town called Hamilton, Ontario, and that was about an hour outside Toronto. And I have two sisters, one older sister and one younger sister. And my um, great parents, you know, they, they middle middle class family. Um, I was always kind of the curious one of the three daughters. I was always joining different groups and we all played sports. So I can't say I played, I was the only one that played sports, but I was definitely the most high energy one. So, you know, I played basketball and water polo and flag football and baseball. And also I would join like different clubs like I do drawing and I joined like a junior naturalist club because I love nature <laughs> and stuff. So growing up up until my, my teens was was great. And once I got to high school, um I found that I wasn't really like fitting in with anyone. I I got I experienced some bullying in elementary school, which also continued in high school because I was kind of a tomboy and I wasn't really feminine. So I didn't really have a lot of friends. 
think I had one or two close friends, but I spent a lot of time in the library as a kid, just learning. I love to learn. I always brought home like stacks of nonfiction books about, you know, the planets or insects. <laughs> I just loved learning. And, you know, every other day my mom would see me cart home this wagon full of, full of books and, and also CDs and music. I loved music because on the weekends, like I didn't, I wouldn't really do much. Like I, I would go for bike rides and stuff, but I would normally spend my weekends listening to, to music in my room. And so that's why even to this day, I have like this Rolodex of lyrics for albums and songs that people are like, how do you know that song? And I'm like, well. What kind of music are you into? Honestly, everything. Like I would listen to like pop, to rock, to hip hop, to classical like I, <laughs> country even just not really the the, metal, the screaming metal stuff but really whatever nice. your mood takes you it's interesting isn't it because you were as you say as a young woman actively involved in sports but yet still found it difficult to make friendships I thought sport is often one of those um, activities that brings different friendships depending on the sport you're doing and by the sounds of it you did different sports so what what was it? Was it your personality as a youngster that kind of um, made it difficult for people to make friends or you were just more introvert or more reserved? I was definitely more introverted, but my mind was extroverted. You know, like my mind wanted to explore all these different topics, but my social aspect was like I was I was pretty, pretty shy, actually. And even when I played some team sports, I experienced bullying within that team, you know, so I had to learn how to play really good defense in basketball because there were like these clicks on the team and they didn't necessarily want to pass you the ball. Right. So that's kind of, kind of how you learn to play good defense. You know, it's, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Cause I was talking to a young teenager just this week about his personality and, and he was talking a bit about he's an introvert um, or all the tests he'd done. What would you say to young kids who are, and I only re- uh, mention this just because this kid, this teenager I was speaking to the other day said, I'm a bit of an introvert. And I'm like, why are you an introvert? Um, do you have anxieties when you go into crowds or, you know, he does sports and stuff like that. I mean, an introvert is not a bad thing. It's just a different personality to an extrovert or whatever the others are. But it's something that changes, doesn't it? It changes with your character, your personality as you get older and wiser and and, and what you do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um also, as I was growing up, I loved having the freedom of like money. So like I got an allowance and I just always wanted to have like the chocolate bars that I couldn't have, you know, and because when I went to school, like my mom was so healthy and, and that's a great thing to want to have a healthy child. But, you know, when you have like trail mix and whole wheat bread as your snack, like no one wants to trade with you. So <laughs> I was always so envious of what the other kids had for lunch. And so I got my first job very young. You know, I was delivering newspapers, wheeling around that same wagon full of newspapers. (laughs) And um, so I didn't have to talk to anyone for that. But then as as I kind of began to afford my own things, like things that I really wanted, I mean, not everything, you can't really buy everything you want with delivering newspapers, but small things. Um, Then I started to get more, more employment. And then I would work, you know, at the little fast food restaurants, pizza restaurants, I became a babysitter. So you I definitely kind of grew into these skills as well. So, cause I did want to be out there. I did want to be around people. I just, when I was younger, I just, I think I was just a little bit scared because of the bullying and what I, what I had experienced in elementary school. You mentioned um, early on that until you were a teenager, you sort of talked about, oh yeah, life was good, you know, family life, sports, bit of bullying at school. 
tricky this, tricky that. Until I was a teenager, that was a kind of giveaway phrase. What happened when you were a teenager that that started to change you completely? Um, well, I actually started to get attention from boys, so I, and I didn't know how to handle that. Um, also, that's when you're you know you're introduced to alcohol, and my parents' house had a lot of alcohol in it. Like they didn't drink it. Like I'm not saying they were alcoholics at all, but like. My friends, like when they would come over, they're like, oh, you have like a wine cellar. And so like my house became like this target for people to steal wine out of like, or, and I, and I would help them take the wine, you know, I'd be like, oh, like this is like making me feel included or whatever. And then I would have parties when they went away. And like, I just loved the feeling of actually having alleged, you know, like friends. Right. So that meant that I was going to break some of my parents' rules and continue to do so. And then I some people say, oh, they remember their first line of cocaine. And I definitely don't. I don't remember where it was or who I did it with. Um, I, I remember the first time I drank, but um, I definitely don't remember the first time I did that drug. Really? <laughs> Is that because your use of cocaine became so so heavy that that first line blurred into the second, the fifth, the tenth and whatever it is become, because that's quite incredible, isn't it? Most people do, you know, because especially as a teenager, you're in the company of a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're in the company of a group of people and out comes this white powder that you've never really heard about, but never seen. And someone's saying, yeah, wrap this up your nose. And you're saying, Oh, hold on a minute. You know, what's it going to do to me? <laughs> I know, but that's when my curiosity came out, you know, because I was always I always want to try new things and then I started to want to try these other things. But yeah, like I just but in high school you can't really afford it. Like I didn't have the budget for doing it every weekend. Absolutely not. Like my parents didn't give me money. They definitely didn't give me handouts for things. They wanted me to buy my own like not buy my own drugs, obviously, but they weren't Support just gonna yourself. give me so much money every day. Like they wanted me to either make my lunch at home and bring it to school and so yeah, I just, I didn't do it. We actually got into like the, ex- that was the ecstasy phase. So that was probably about 2007, 2008. Yeah. So that's what we did because it was $10 <laughs> instead of. So, 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 so you went from sort of sneaking bottles of wine out of your parents' cellar to, to using cocaine and, and other drugs. How old was you at the time? And, and how often would you use these drugs? I was 16. Like the, the word, like when it first started, I was like, yeah, 15, 16, grades nine and 10. And then I still, you know, I, I'd kind of terrorized my parents at this point. And, but I also knew that I wanted to go to university. You know, there, there was still that learning side in me that knew that I wanted to go elsewhere and explore the world, build my education, build my life experience. And so within the last two years of high school, I actually hunkered down and focused because I knew that I could. I was like determined to prove that I could. Be, be like a very strategic procrastinator and, and, and pull it off. So, you know, grade nine and 10 was just a, a crap show. And then grades 11 and 12, I did everything I had to do almost like night and day. Um, and then graduated with honors. <laughs> and, and, and was, was, was that period 16 to 18 or just before? Did your personality change? Did, did you become a different person because you were now taking drugs and using that as, as a way to mix with people? Um, I don't think people really inherently change. I think their focus changes on what they want. Like, I think maybe when I was on the drugs, I, I would change temporarily, but there, there's still that inner person in me that was still always kind. Like I was always a nice person. I never was mean to people when I was drunk or high. Like I was like, I was like a nice drunk. Like I never really got angry. If anything, I would get sad and have some crying fits, but I was never like a mean one. So if anything, I just want to be around people more and be more loving and be more of who I was instead of less of it. So you said that 
you, you were able to still knuckle down and go to university. What did you What did you study at university, and what was life like? Tell me a little bit about that that period. Sure. So I studied international development, and I really wanted to go into nutrition, but my grades in math like just weren't there. You know, I had good grades and everything else, but I just couldn't like you had to have calculus to get into this nutrition program. And I, so I was like, okay, well, I still do love to travel. And, you know, prior to applying for this program, I'd actually went to Costa Rica for a month and, and volunteered, um, on the beach and, and in the rainforest. Cause I, I was like, I don't want to go to into this program if I don't know if I like this. So I went away for a month and I, and I absolutely loved it. I loved being immersed in a new culture, helping people, learning new things, learning about different species and animals and just being more exposed to the world and it helped me realize how, how lucky I was also as well. And so it just brought this, this joy in me and this desire in me to, to do that. And I, I, I applied for it and I got, in, I got into it cause it was like a bachelor of arts. So you don't need to have calculus for that. You still need to have a math, but you don't need to have like the, the high end calculus. <laughs> at, at some point in your late teens or was it your early twenties, things started to go a little bit wrong for you because you got caught up in a situation that, that landed you in prison. Was that the turning point? And tell me how we get to that because you're in Costa Rica, you're on the beach, you're doing stuff that you've now discovered you want to do. So you were probably still dabbling a little bit with the drugs. Where did it all start to go wrong? It went wrong actually after I graduated university. So I graduated with honors you know, I had all this experience within my degree and also I had joined programs. I had worked a bunch of jobs outside of university and then I moved to Toronto and I, I worked a corporate job inside because like they like you to have three years experience for any kind of other job. So I was like, okay, I'll just I'll try to get experience here. It's kind of like a catch 22. <laughs> they want three years experience, but no one will really hire you in that field. So it's like, what do I do? <laughs> so I just tried to build my skill set by getting jobs that I that I could. And that was like in corporate sales. It was in marketing. What else did I, I worked for like a cell phone company, just everything, restaurants, whatever, everything. And then when I graduated and I worked abroad again in Indonesia, I worked for the ministry of foreign affairs, came back. And then I kind of wanted to start my own business. So I, I lived on my own and then I kind of felt like lost and I was living in Toronto. I had, I had money, but and I wanted to start my own business, but I also didn't really know what I was going to do with that. Like I, I did it. I, it was a social media company. So I started the social media business because I loved traveling and I was really good at storytelling, but then living in Toronto was also surrounded with parties and, and narcotics. And it's so easy just to get immersed in that culture. And then combined with uh, a family kind of collapse, like, like, you know, our family split up and it, this was very challenging for me. And I know that this happens to a lot of people, like so many people. And I was at an age where a lot of people were like, oh, you shouldn't really be sad about that. So I pretended that I wasn't sad. How old was you at the time, Emily? Tw 26. Still young. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you're just going through something and you see other people hurt that love you and love each other and love what they've built together it's not easy. And it doesn't like, no one is immune to like, I don't say no one is, immune, but it's like, it doesn't matter where you are in the world or, and who you are, like seeing that happen hurts and, it, and, it, and it's very, very difficult. And so I didn't know how to handle it. And I, well, actually I did, I thought I knew how to handle it. And I just chose to just use more cocaine. And this was the most cocaine I've ever done 
in my life. Um, and were you using up until this point recreationally, yeah. if you like, you know, as part of your work and giving you the energy or, you know, part of that whole bars and culture thing, whatever you want to describe it as? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but I was highly, highly functional. And then when then this happened, um, I wasn't. And I knew something was really wrong, but I was also ashamed. And you're also, as a woman starting a business, you don't want to seem weak. And there's all these obstacles that you have to get through already. And so, I mean, I thought I took, I thought I was taking the harder way out, but I was, I, I, now that I think about it, I was actually taking the easy way out because I didn't really want to be open about it. I didn't want to process it. I wanted to pretend like it wasn't happening. And so I could just continue on with my life. And so they could continue on with theirs. And that turned out to be not a good decision because I ended up in a relationship with someone that I thought I trusted. And we ended up on a vacation. And let me know if you want me to keep going. (laughs) Well, first, just tell me how, because this is the point, I suppose, where you're saying, you know, your your consumption of cocaine really did affect your personality. There's one way kind of affecting people's personality where you're functional. And I think that's a good way of describing it. You can consume the drug, but still hide it from people or still function. And you were starting your own business. But are you saying at this point to to, to bury the, the pain of what was happening in your family in that background, your drug started to alter your personality and the way people perceived you and saw you, it was obvious to people. Is that what you're saying? I think it was obvious to the people that were closest to me and it's not obvious to people that don't know you. So often I would just go out with people that didn't really know me or people that were doing the same thing, right? And so they don't really notice because you're you're both with each other for the same reason. Um, but yeah, definitely like I would show up to family functions under the influence. Um, I one time made my grandma cry because I thought I was, this was the time where I actually thought I was fine when I absolutely wasn't. And I'd been up all night and I went to see my grandma and she, I couldn't even talk. And so things like that, like I would be late for things or not show up. And so definitely this, that was at a point where it was starting to impact the relationships with people that, that knew me. And so, and just to be clear, what 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 drugs were you taking at the time, and how were you taking those drugs? Um, alcohol and cocaine. And you were snorting the cocaine, as they say, yeah. um, not crack or anything as heavy as as that. No, no. You say you met somebody, or it was a catalyst of part of your. You met somebody and went off and did something. You're smiling. Tell me more. What happened there? <laughs> so I actually met someone through my work, through my business, me trying to do you know, continue on with my life. And we did, I helped them build their, their business platform. So like their social media accounts and everything like that. And then they started to owe me money, but we'd also developed like a pretty close friendship. I don't want to say it was like full on romantic. It was more of like, just like a loving friendship. And it was never really like physically intimate. Um, but it was just like there, you can still have intimacy without physical intimacy. So we had this like really kind of strange relationship and he actually wanted to help me get sober allegedly. And he wanted to help me get on a different trajectory. Um, so I trusted him, you know, he would do like really nice things for me, walk my dog and just bring me things if I, if I needed to just, and never expected, never expected anything in return. And then he asked me to go on a trip with him. And this is about six months later after I'd known him. So it wasn't like, Oh, I met this guy and went on a trip. (laughs) You know, we, we developed or, or so I thought like, um, a trusting kind of relationship. And he's like, do you want to go on a, on a trip? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, 
And then he also promised me like that the money that he owed me would be paid when I got back from this trip. And I was like, okay. Cause I was starting to get annoyed. Right. And I was like, you know, I don't want to go on a trip with you when you owe me money. Like where's the dough. Right. <laughs> so then we went on a trip to St. Lucia and he was so nice up until then. And the day that we got to the airport, we were going to somewhere totally different. Like I found out we were going to St. Lucia only when I got to the airport. Originally it was Puerto Rico. We were going to, and then when I questioned him on it, he just questioned me back about my substance use. And I started to see his character change when we were at the airport. But I was already there. My bags were packed. And I know a lot of people that listen to this would probably do the same thing. Like they would probably believe that they had made the mistake and had made the error for sure. But it sounds like you're you're quite a strong character. You know, somebody who runs their own business, um, although slightly distracted by the drugs you were taking you're at the airport with this guy you've only known for six months six months is in some people's eyes a long time in others a very short period of time but you turn up the airport and he tells you you're going somewhere that you didn't expect to be going why didn't you say adios amigos and off you go go in a different direction because I still trusted him you know you like to give people the benefit of the doubt you know and I'd done a lot of traveling before like I hadn't just been to Indonesia I had also gone to Peru and cuz I loved spending my my extra money on traveling and so traveling wasn't new to me you know and so I was I was excited and I also did want to get away and I did take the easy way out of wanting to escape what was going on at home and I thought maybe this week away would would help and with someone that I that I trusted and you know sometimes you eventually you do believe like other people, right? Like when he's like, Oh, we, what, it was the alcohol. You're like, you're just drunk. Like I, I always said we were going here and sort of like that kind of gaslighting thing. And I didn't know it was gaslighting at the time, but I was, I was like, okay, yeah, maybe you're right. Like I'm already, I could just see the beach in my head and I was like, screw it, you know? So <laughs> I went. Where did you end up in St. Lucia? Um, at a resort. It was like an all inclusive. And then what happened? So everything was fine for the first three days. Um, he told me that he wasn't going to drink on the trip. And then he like started to drink a lot. He even got drugs. You know, I thought this was going to be a different kind of trip, but I was like, Hey, if you're going to drink, I'm going to drink too. You know, like, okay, why not? And then on the third day, um, he takes me to actually on the third day, he says like, we're not going to the pool today. Our friends are coming to pick us up at 12 and we're sorry, not 12 at three. And you have to get in the car with me. And he's like, this isn't all just fun and games, you know? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, we're here to work. And then so I was just a bit confused and I was, I remember just sitting in the hotel room, like, like what's going on. And then, so I got in the car with them and then I knew what was happening. Like I knew that he had brought me down to smuggle narcotics back with him. Again, I didn't know that I was going to actually have to do it. I thought maybe I was just going along for the ride, but then we go to this house and there's a woman there and she says, thank you so much for doing this. He, I guess he was in a lot of debt. It was a lot. It was a, it was a house and there's just like, bricks and bricks of drugs in the walls and there wasn't guns or rabid barking dogs there wasn't any of that it was people in in a room in their house like they were just looked like regular people right so you know sometimes the things we see in the movies like you know that's what people imagine like there's definitely a lot of drugs there but like the, the viciousness and, and the gut like that was not, not there luckily for me you know i they were actually very nice to me and so i was it was scarily nice to me almost. And then he looked at me and he's just like, I, I'm sorry. You know, he's like, I'm sorry, but we, we have to do this. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? And you, you, you kind of caveated it at the beginning there by sort of saying it weren't menacing. It wasn't vicious, you know, because most people who find themselves in the situation that you were finding yourself in, 
then go on to describe how they felt extremely scared and threatened because the, the the suppliers, if you like, or the dealers had guns or weapons and you felt if you didn't do what they were about to ask you to do, then your life would be in danger. Or even the guy that you was with, you know, started to strong arm you. But you're saying that's not what, what happened in your situation. I'm sure you were scared if you were discovering this for the first time. And there will mm. be doubters. There would be people who say, ah, she knew exactly what was going on. You know, yeah. this woman is sharp. She's not. Just tell me a little bit about your emotions at the time then. You've walked into a house, there's drugs. You're being told, thanks for doing this. Your guy's saying, look, we have to do this. Yeah. So then this lady took me into a room and she took my measurements because – they, we actually weren't given the drugs that day. Like what, I guess what was happening that day was that we, we had to get fitted and then we had to go like, because the drugs are concealed in like bike shorts type things with a, with a pouch in the front of the shorts and the pouch in the back. So one kilogram of Coke goes in the front and then one kilogram goes in the back. And then after like they took the measurements then I had to go to a mall with this woman that I didn't know. And she's like, okay, we're going to pretend to go dress shopping. Um, you're going to pick out two dresses and I'm going to pick out the one that's actually going to, like be the drug smuggling dress or have you. And so I had to stay with this woman. Turns out as we were leaving the hotel, he had brought my passport with him, given it to this lady. And I didn't even know, you know, I kept my passport in the room with him. I didn't think that he was going to take it and give it to this woman so she could have my identity. Right. So now she knew who I was. Um, and now all these people knew who I was and I would, that I was with him. So, that's when I started to get actually like really, really scared, you know, and I still had to buy a dress with this woman. Then we both got back in the car and dropped off at our hotel. We, so I was dropped off back at the hotel with him. And then the next three days were just a blur. I told him I, I was scared. I didn't want to do it. Like I told him I'm going to fail at this pretty much. He didn't want me on my phone or computer. Like, and when I did get on my phone, I got all these weird messages from like his alleged ex-wife and so I guess she somehow, he said that he was, she was his ex-wife. Then I, I started to doubt everything. I was like, is she in on this? Like, how does she know I'm here? Very, very bizarre stuff. And then he basically told me that they, the people at the airport have my passport identity, like these drug smuggling people have it and that he owed money and that I was down there and that's what I was there to do with him. And so I said, listen, I'm not going to be good at this. I really don't want to do it. I just want to go home. And he basically said, like, you don't want to not do this because like there's repercussions, you know? And I was more, I was actually more scared of him than I was the people that took me to the dress store and the people that took my measurements. I was just more scared of him. And so I just knew that I didn't want to play hardball and I just wanted to go home. This guy that you, you met back in Toronto, who seemed like such a nice chap, all of a sudden turns out to be quite menacing. Not physically, it doesn't sound like. Did you not at any point feel that you could just take your passport, walk away, get on a plane and fly home? Not really, because I didn't know when the flights were. He had already, I guess, sent my information to them when he booked the flights. So how it works is like you, they basically pay for your flight and then you bring these drugs back. And then when they're sold, that debt, takes over whatever. So they had actually paid for the flights for my flight. And I had no idea. You thought it was this guy that you'd built a relationship, friendship, intimacy yeah. with. Yeah. Tell me about the the day. So you've had these disputes with him, you're feeling uncomfortable, but the day comes when you're having to put on this dress with the the, the drugs inside. How was you feeling and tell me what happened? 
So we left on the last day and this was on the Friday and the, the, the same people who picked us up on the Wednesday picked us up on the Friday and because they didn't want us having the narcotics on us for that brick, like that block of time between the week, they kept them there. And then, so we went back to this house, got fitted up with this, uh, this ugly dress, bike shorts. He had it too. So it wasn't just me. And then the same people dropped us off to the airport. And he kept telling me, everything's going to be fine. You know, he's like, don't worry. Like as soon as we get home, like, uh, what did he say? He's like, they, they, he said they already know at the airport, like what's going on. And I don't really say that a lot because it's like, that's a pretty big allegation to make <laughs> on his part. He also said that he'd done it before, just every single line in the book to try to get me to calm down. And I was, I was completely sober that day. Like I, I wasn't calm, you know, but I also wasn't about to freak out at the airport because I didn't want to be stuck there. You know, I just wanted to go home. And so I just thought that like by going along with whatever this was, I could just go home and deal with it later. Cause I just knew the safest option was just getting out of the country. Did you get out of the country? Yeah. Yeah. We got on the flight and then we got into Canada, but that's like when we landed, um, we got pulled into secondary. Yeah. And I, I just knew already that it was over. Like it, like the, these people at the airport are trained to notice like little like actions, even like little your face and like how you move it. And I, I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't a professional. I'd never done this before. And he just kept, Oh, and then, oh, sorry. There's another part to the story. So in the, in the final like two days, he's like, okay, because you're really freaking out, I'm going to take these drugs in a backpack. Like I'm going to have a backpack, right? I'm going to have a backpack on with me. And when I get off the flight in Canada, I can take the drugs off me in the bathroom, put them in the backpack and give them to him to take through customs. Right. Yeah. So, cause I was like, I can't lie to a border agent. And then when we landed and I was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. He's like, oh, it's too late now. So he like bait and switched me. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I, how could I, how am I supposed to hide that physically? Right. Um, but again, I just bit my tongue and put my head to the floor. And as we got through the first um, screening, they told us we had to go to, to customs and then we were separated and questioned. So you went through customs together. He didn't abandon you at that point and leave you to your own devices of getting through. He stuck. No. Yeah, no, they, they actually like, they, they separate you like the, the border guards separate you. So, cause, so you can't look at each other when you're being questioned, right? They had me facing this way and him facing that way, two stations over. What was it like, Emily? I mean, you, you've got through St. Lucia's customs and you believe that's because they, or some of the custom officers were in on the drug operations, probably being paid a few quid to let people go past or not do their job properly. Um, you got on the plane, you must have relaxed a little bit that stage one was successful, you know, oh, maybe he is right, I can get away with this. So you're on the flight, you land in Canada, but again, you must have at that point started to get scared because it's never going to be as easy in somewhere like Canada as it was in St. Lucia. What what was your emotions like? Um, um, you know, how was you reacting? Was you tripping over yourself? Was you watching everyone? Was everybody suspicious to you? Did you think, oh, that's a custom guy. He's following me. She's caught me. And, and you know, I mean, what was it like? That feeling. You, you you are an international drug smuggler at this point, whether you like it or not, whether you were prepared for it or not. But that is what you are. We watch it in movies, but you've done it for real. What was it like 
trying to make those final steps off of that plane and into Canada without being caught. I knew I couldn't get off the plane quick enough. And I honestly did my best to hide any signs of discomfort, but your body tells a story for you and you can't control it. Right. So I, I didn't know that I was doing, well, actually we both together were doing so many things that were red flags. You know, I, I didn't want to walk up to the customs guy with him because I was mad because he just told me that I can't give him this backpack full of narcotics after. Um, so that was the thing I wasn't, I was looking at the floor. Um, I was wearing a cardigan, which is another warning sign when you're coming back from a tropical country and the drugs were so poorly concealed. Like it looked like a Kleenex box underneath. So I, sometimes I wonder if we were just meant to get caught because I also learned that in certain operations, they'll send some people with little amounts through and two kilograms is considered small, um, crazy or not. What's the street value of two kilograms in Canada? 150,000. Yeah. Okay, so you 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 you're believing you might have been one of the decoys, the the kind of because I was definitely a good decoy because I was so bad at it. Yeah, uh, but at the time it was just like I didn't know what to do, and then I just followed him because that that was the only thing that I knew how to do. I wasn't going to cause a scene at the airport because these weren't my drugs, you know. And if I was if it if it was my fault for something happening, then that's when I would really really put myself and my family at risk. Like he would just blame me. You were caught. Customs, obviously, all, all these telltale signs, they these red flags you talk about, they spotted, and you didn't get through customs. So you're now taken into, what, a small room and told to strip? Um, so they ask you a series of questions. The first four or five are pretty regular, you know, where you're coming from, what do you do for work, which, and then it's like, what do you file on your tax return? And then ask you, do you like to, like, party? And I was like, yeah. And then... Um, they asked me, oh, then they searched my bag with this. Um, first they search your bag and then they search it with like this thing called an ion scanner, which can trace it for like molecular levels of narcotics. And they didn't find anything then. But then I guess the officer noticed like a bulge in my, dr- <laughs> in my dress. And so, but I didn't know this till later. I just read it in the paperwork. And then they're like, okay, Miss O'Brien, um, we're going to search you, um, with a female officer is going to search you. Um, but first we have to ask you, do you have any drugs on you today? And. I knew that at this point it was just like, I'm not going to lie to this guy. Right. I was already, I knew that it was over and I actually felt a little bit of relief that this was where I was because I couldn't wait to actually tell them the story. Um, But I wasn't going to do it when I was still right beside him. Right. I was still, you know, going to answer these questions. And then they, I guess I waited so long to answer that question that I had to ask again they had to ask again and they're like, Miss O'Brien, like, do you have drugs on you? And I just looked up at him straight in the eye and said, yeah. And then I got put into a holding cell while they tested it, weighed it. And then I was formally arrested by the RCMP, which is like the Canada's police, right? It's not like the local police. It's like Canada's police. I, I can't help but think of this um, young middle-class girl who loves sports, had a bit of the challenge, making friends, but did have some friends, bit introvert, but, you know, kind of broke out of that shell. She got a little bit older and dabbled a little bit in drugs as teenagers do. And all of a sudden you're sort of sitting in this room with customs officers taking drugs out of your dress, your cycling shorts, and you're kind of holding your hands up 
What was you thinking at that moment? Because you're no longer this little girl. You're no longer the little girl of your parents who was, you know, you, you are now a drug smuggler. You are now, a, well, a suspected criminal. I don't know if you've got any other criminal convictions, whether you've done anything before this. But there is a there, there is a bit of me that kind of thinks, well, how vulnerable was she? But then there's another bit of me who thinks, well, this is a tough cookie, you know, to go through with it despite all the, the threat um, suggests that you have an inner resilience that obviously is going to serve you well as the months turn into a prison sentence. So what was you feeling? You said you felt relieved, Emily. Were there tears? Were you now thinking the only thing in front of me is a prison cell? No, because you don't know what happens that day. I had no clue what the repercussions of this were. I just knew that I had to sit in a jail cell and then I was put in a jail over the weekend and I was still like, when can I go home? You know, I was just very ignorant and very naive and I didn't plan this. So I didn't go over, Oh, this could, if this happens, like I could go to prison, you know, like I, I didn't know. Right. So when I, um, when I was released from jail and this was after my parents had to bail me out two days later because I got arrested on a Friday and there's no bail hearings till Monday. So, but they both came together for me. They're recently separated and, the only way that I was getting bailed out was if I was on house arrest. And that's like, okay, you have to go back and live with your mom, even though you have your own apartment in Toronto. And I love my mom, but I didn't want to live with her. You know, I kind of saw this as a whole inconvenience. I was very mad at the time. And, you know, I think it's one, obviously a stage that everyone goes through with denial and just trying to get out of it. And I spent a long time being mad and it actually took two and a half years for the court processes to finalize. And by the time I'd actually got sentenced to prison, um, I was like, I was ready for it because I knew that this was supposed to happen to me and it's going to help me create a, a good change in myself. And maybe I can do something powerful with it to help others as well, because that's who I was. I was someone that grew up helping others and, and learning and doing things that mattered. So this was going to be another one of those times. Before you got to that, you had to stand in front of that judge and get sentenced to imprisonment. Did you plead guilty? How long was your prison sentence? I did plead guilty because I knew that that was the first step to healing. And I knew that at the end of the day, I brought those drugs over that border. That was it. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to take the easy way out on this. I wanted to be dealt this hand because clearly me trying to take the easy way out didn't work. And I do, I am someone that likes to kind of get a little bit of tough love sometimes, whether that's for my family or life in general. So yeah, I got, I was sentenced to four years and of course this sounds terrifying, but as I began to learn more about the prison system, I learned that if you're on good behavior, if you're well-behaved, you can get out earlier as long as you're good, you know, no, no drugs, no fights, no incidents, I guess, in, in, inside, and you can be out within a year. And I think, and I thought that being in prison for a year was okay. You know, I, I think sometimes we all just need to go away to places and take sabbaticals and be away from our environment. Just, just to be clear, Emily is not suggesting that anyone goes and smuggles drugs no. so they do a year in prison. You, you no. say you prepared yourself for, for the lockup. <laughs> that was inevitable. Mm -hmm. But was it what you expected? You've just been sentenced to four years. You're being taken down the steps, if you like, to that symbolic kind of walking down the steps now to start your prison sentence. You'd only spent, I, I, from what you said, two days 
in custody until your parents bailed you out. So you'd never been inside a prison, but you've got this four years. You're now kind of being led away, if you like. Was prison what you expected? I know you've said that, that you know, good behavior, et cetera, et cetera, you could be out a lot quicker than four years. But, you know, the realization um, and the reality of actually going into prison for the very first time, were you scared or were you kind of shoulders back, chest out, I'm ready for this? I think it was a bit of both. You know, I think the fact that I didn't really, we always see prison on on TV shows and we have this idea, but I've also always learned to never expect expectations. You know what I mean? You just have to go in with a learner's mindset. And I was very fortunate enough to, by chance, meet someone through my work through, because I was able to still run my business while this was all happening. Although it was very stressful, very paranoid. It was the worst time of my life, probably. I was able to meet someone that had actually been sentenced to the same prison for the same crime through an event that I was volunteering at. Right. So she actually helped me and she helped help my family guide us through this very arduous process. And so, yes, of course it was, it was scary. It was a very new thing, but I kind of began to look at it as going to another country somewhere with its own language, borders, currency, citizens, rules, right? And because I'd I'd opened myself up when I was younger to different experiences like that, I was able to kind of accept this one and know that, you know, I wasn't someone that had anything to prove to others. Just I just had to prove to myself that I was, you know, capable of doing so much more and capable of turning this around. But I had to be accountable for what I did and I had to be transparent for what I did. Because anytime you live in denial, you don't heal and you don't do anything good with it it just begins to just begin to like rot inside. And I I don't want to rot inside. I want it to live. Just as a footnote to your own story, what happened to the guy that you were with? He got sentenced to the same amount as me because they, when we were arrested, um, my lawyer separated our cases. So instead of being charged together for, for double the amount of drugs, we were charged separately. And because he had the same amount, he was charged for the same because they can't really prove anything that happened in another country. So they, they charge you for what they can prove. And that was the amount that he brought over the border. And he actually ended up going a bit later because he wanted to plead not guilty. And he kept like deferring in the court case. And I was like, no, I want to go like, let's, let's wrap this up. Can we please like, I want to go. I want to stop putting pressure on my family. Like, I think we are all, we are all ready for this next step to happen. So we wanted it to be done as soon as possible. So while you were in prison, Things changed for you, didn't they? Because um, you, you you talked about, you know, you've embraced it. You know, it's a tough thing to do in itself, but you have. You've embraced your situation. You've taken responsibility, and you're going to make the best out of a bad situation. But how did you turn things around? Because you've now got a business to do with popcorn. People will be surprised to hear. But tell me how how prison and popcorn kind of becomes Emily, or Emily becomes prison and popcorn. Tell me this. Sure. Yeah. So I went to prison not knowing what I was going to build. I knew that I was going to build something because I was like, I have a year. I'm sure I'm going to meet incredible people. I'm sure I'm going to be scared. I'm sure I'm going to cry. I'm sure I'm going to learn. But I also was always very entrepreneurial, you know, from my from my jobs and my work. And I also knew that getting a job with a criminal record isn't the most easy thing in the world. In fact, it's almost impossible, especially a job that offers advancements and uh, has benefits, all those things. And so I went to prison thinking I was going to create something. And as I began, as I began to meet 
other people and hearing their stories, I realized that we're all so similar in prison or not. Um, we all do things that can hurt others, can hurt ourselves, um, but not because we're actually bad. It's because we were scared or trying to fight for our lives or mental illness or addiction. I'm sure there are some crimes that are committed because people just want to get rich. Like that's 100% true um, or profit or whatever. But majority of people that I met in there just want to see their families again and wanted a second chance. And food was something that brought people together inside. It made, it created joy and laughter. It, you know, created a, a way for people to share their stories. And popcorn w- was one of my favorite snacks growing up. We, in federal prison in Canada, where I was, we, we aren't served food on trays. Like you are, if you're in maximum and I was in maximum for a bit. So I did have that, that tray food experience. But we had access to like a small list of grocery items and some spices. And we could also buy some snacks off the the commissary or canteen. And so I would buy popcorn and put different things like spices on it. So would other, so the other inmates. And I began to think about, you know, what kinds of popcorn businesses or snack companies did more than just that, did more than just create a snack. And because I wanted to help leverage and, and redefine people's narrative as it came out of prison, including my own, because I, I knew that I could, um, but I didn't want to really do it alone. And so that's when I, one night I just, I had this little notebook that I kept beside my bed and, you know, in prison, you have no phone or computer. So you're not distracted by anything. You're just, it's just you in a, in darkness and your mind just goes. And that's when I knew that I wanted to start a popcorn company where I could employ other people that had been incarcerated and also use it as a platform for storytelling because the more storytelling you can have, the more universal you can make people's experiences. And that's what I found with, with, which is now comeback snacks is, um, how relatable it is. It's not unrelatable. Like prison and drug smuggling is it's relatable to every person on this planet that has made a mistake and wanted forgiveness and wanted a second chance. Unbelievable. And, and, and you, you kind of said it in a throwaway. So it's called comeback snacks. Yes. <laughs> and, and what is comeback snacks? So it's, it's popcorn that has various different flavors mm-hmm. and your staff or the people that you work with are themselves or some of them ex offenders or ex prisoners. Yep. Ex offenders on um, people that have struggled incredibly with, with addiction because that is a prison in itself. I really advocate for yeah people that have been incarcerated or people that have struggled with with addiction for sure um and even just certain mental health issues absolutely just anyone that wants to be involved in something that where they can feel safe because we live in this world where we're handing a resume with all of our finest moments true or not right and what I find is like when you can actually be transparent about yourself that's when you can truly do your best work and and be the best version of yourself so when people ask me oh can I like come work with you I'm like sure like they're like, Joe, do you want a resume? I'm like, only if it's outlined the worst things you've ever done and how you've learned from it. <laughs> That's really cool, actually. And and is it working? Is it is it working for you and for the people that you employ? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually it's awesome. Um, you know, I started inside prison with popcorn kernels and stamps, and now we we have two manufacturers. Um, we are producing like pallets and pallets of product per week. We ship it all across Canada. Um, hopefully the UK soon. I'm actually working with someone in the in the UK on something to do with training uh, incarcerated individuals on like how to make money on the internet, making like an internet business. So might be coming there soon. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well then we should connect. It's, it's unbelievable actually. And it's great to hear that you've turned such a bad situation, although you were an entrepreneur in some way, shape or form, or you had some ambition, got distracted by drugs, 
but got back on track and you're bringing people with you, which I think is is brilliant. Just just one other one or two other questions. Just just around the, your own narrative coming out, criminal convictions. You said you know that in itself is a, is a challenge. How do you overcome that? How do you encourage other people who you can't employ? I'm an advocate of embrace who you are. And if people can't embrace it with you, then they're not good for you because they're going to hold you back or suppress you. What's your message, Emily? I would just say, yeah, transparency. Again, transparency is an asset. And you can't help others if you aren't honest about yourself. And we've all been in a prison in some way. We've all been criminals in some way. Maybe not got caught. Maybe we have. Um, we've all done things that we regret. Um, and I think it's important that we have to, if we want to be forgive, forgiven for things that we've done, we have to offer it as well. And, you know, it's very easy to hate, to hate a stranger. Right. But if it, if it was like our mom or our brother or someone that this, something like this had happened to, we would easily forgive them. It's called, I call it like proximity forgiveness. But if we can actually listen to other people's stories and try to be in their shoes or think of, okay, what if this person was, was my neighbor? And usually a lot of people are your neighbor that have been through something similar. So if we can just have that perspective, then I think we would all be on a better, better path. And we would all be a more, I don't want to say like inclusive, but we would, we'd all be more supportive of other people's journeys and other people's struggles because struggle is universal. Yeah. It, it is absolutely. And, you know, this podcast is called Second Chance. And it's about other people's second chances, not just people who've been to prison or got caught up in the criminal justice system, but there are different ways. So what would your, was your going to prison your second chance? Or is it you giving other people a second chance, Emily? Or is it a combination of, of both? Or don't you even see it as a second chance? It's just the rite of passage. I mean, how do you describe it? I think it's about... Chance, like yeah, definitely second chances, but also like chances in general and and life because this isn't the last mistake I'm gonna make. Like I'm sure, I'm not gonna smuggle drugs again, but like you know what I mean. There's gonna be times when we are we all are gonna fall again, and it's knowing how to pick yourself up by taking accountability for those things. Like running a business, you think you're gonna do everything right? Absolutely not, right? But it's more like learning the the strength and taking ownership for when you know we we do make the wrong choice, and it's about continuing to grow and build and helping others as you do so what does the future hold for you now emily apart from overtaking the world of popcorn sweet and salty <laughs> and lots of different flavors what's different about your popcorns i love popcorn i'm oh yeah, i'll just send I, you some yeah no for sure i love sitting down i do the sweet and salty actually probably because of the sweet but i mean what what's different about the popcorn that you do um so it's our flavors are really unique and we have some traditional flavors but we have very unique flavors that people can't really get anywhere else. We have like a lemon meringue caramel. We have um, a peanut butter chocolate caramel. We're launching a lemon pepper dill, um, which is actually the original flavor that I made in prison. And so along with the good flavors comes with storytelling, right? And so every time that people get a bag, it's like they can give it to someone that maybe is struggling with something and knowing, you know, you can get through this, right? So it has the ability to tell a story and create storytelling and create connection, and is that because the story you're talking about is written on the popcorn packet or is it just, you know, where does lemon and dill popcorn come from? Ah, it comes from this woman called Emily who created it, who da di da di da di da di da Yeah. Yeah. It, it tells the story on the, on the back of the popcorn. We share everything that people send us. Our email inbox is just flooded with ways that it's helped people in ways that I never thought possible. You know, it's like, oh, you helped my daughter, 
you know, with her anxiety or like I have parents calling me, you know, and not parents that have kids that are behaving badly, let's say, but just parents of kids that are struggling with things. And that's how mine started. It started with me struggling with something and it's all based around, around love and people wanting to help others. So incredible. So anybody listening to this podcast who wants to find out a bit more about your comeback popcorn, et cetera, where can they find that kind of information? Cause I'm sure there will be lots of people really interested. Yeah, for sure. And hopefully it'll be in the, in the UK soon too. So the next destination, um, it's comebacksnacks.com. My name's Emily O'Brien and you can find me on social media at comebacksnacks or at ems.obrien, but at comebacksnacks is probably easier. <laughs> so you can find me on both. Thank you very much for sharing your story with me, Emily. It's an incredible story. And it's incredible that you've come out the other end and you've turned your negative, as I've said before, into a positive. It is, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, about determination and resilience. Mm -hmm. And you definitely have an abundance of that. So thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thanks so much, Raphael. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode. Please subscribe, share and follow us on social media at A Reporter. That's all one word, A Reporter, on Instagram and Twitter. Or you can go to The Second Chance by Raphael Rowe on Facebook. It would be greatly appreciated if you could rate and review this podcast on the platform where you listen to this podcast. This is also an independent podcast and so we need your support to keep it going. So if you want to sponsor or advertise on this show, please get in touch via email on the Raphael Rowe website. Now, if you think I should get someone on the show, a guest that you think would be good for the Second Chance podcast, get in touch. Drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter at A Reporter or go on to the Second Chance by Raphael Rowe Facebook page or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.